0: Our short reading this morning from Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, consists of four subordinate clauses. Each of these function as a link in a chain, building on the statement prior to it, and all answering the question, why, with regard to that prior statement. The link actually begins before our reading this morning. In verse 15, the Apostle Paul has declared his eagerness to preach to those who are in Rome, the imperial capital. Why? Because he's not ashamed of the gospel why for it is the power of god that brings salvation why for it reveals the righteousness of god righteousness by faith why because it has been all along by faith written down long ago the righteous will live by faith at the conceptual center of these statements and the source of paul's Confidence, his lack of shame with regard to this message, is power, the power of the gospel. The original word power there is connected to our word dynamite, explosive power, the power to change lives, as Father Nick spoke about last week, the power of salvation. If you've spent any time around Christians or in the church, salvation is likely a term that you've heard before. Yet, perhaps because of that familiarity, it's a word that can be difficult for us to define. Jesus saves, we might readily confess, but then have difficulty agreeing about what precisely that means. Part of that difficulty in definition or disagreement relates to differing perspectives, differing backgrounds. Commentators have written a great deal on the New Testament idea of salvation, its different facets. If I was to ask through the screen, all of you here watching, what is the world's most pressing need? We'd probably hear a variety of different answers from a variety of different perspectives, listing all kinds of valid maladies, vexing problems, climate change and income equality, cycles of violence and social ills, physical challenges, historical injustices. And our definition of salvation might likely depend on what we perceive the most pressing problem or problems to be. That, we would say, is what we need saving from. For the apostle Paul in Romans, the most pressing need in the world is unrighteousness. We might call it sin, but not sin as a discrete or individual act of wrongdoing, sin as a power. And righteousness as something ensconced, embedded in the fabric of the world, rooted in human beings like me and like you, in the very structure and pattern of our world, inescapable, pervasive. According to Paul, according to the gospel, this is the reality that accounts for all those historical injustices, all those social ills, those intractable contemporary issues that can make life a living hell, individually and corporately, of our own making. The disordered patterns of thinking and feeling we can't break, the human propensity to work against our good in so many different ways. The things we've done and left undone and for which we can't answer. Sin and unrighteousness, these are the truest enemies of which Psalm 23 speaks. They are the problem, warring against us, cutting us off from life with God, severing us from each other, compromising our connection to the created world around us, corroding our own sense of self in shame and guilt. That, for the Apostle Paul, is what we need saving from. And with that perspective, then salvation, true saving is defined as deliverance, deliverance from this power, from the hold of sin, from unrighteousness and all its consequences. Salvation is, uh, according to the Apostle Paul, the unrighteousness of God, overcoming sin, overcoming our unrighteousness, dynamically, explosively saving us. The idea here is that through the gospel, the righteousness of God delivers us from the hold of this pervasive power. Just as the people of Israel were delivered body, heart, and soul from captivity in Egypt, so too is God's saving action, delivering us from captivity to unrighteousness, to sin. Isaac Newton's first law, as many of you have probably learned, states An object at rest stays at rest, and an object in motion stays in motion, with the same speed and in the same direction, unless acted upon by an unbalanced force." Visions of difficult memorization in grade school flash before our eyes. The idea of an unbalanced force there in Newton's law can get a little bit technical. But it's basically the notion that a force must overwhelm whatever power has put the object in motion or whatever force has put it in place, in a place of rest. It's called the law of inertia for this reason. The idea is, is that to make a change, to move something out of inertia takes force, takes power. To move something deeply rooted, ensconced, embedded in us and in the world takes incredible power, a great deal of force. According to Paul, this power is found in the gospel. In the gospel, there is the power to overcome the inertia of unrighteousness, the hold of sin. How does it do this? How is this dynamic power at work? By unveiling, By exposing, revealing the righteousness of God. That is the force, the powerful force at work against unrighteousness. As we look at the pressing needs in the world, in our own lives, this can feel like a puzzling non sequitur. Like if you were drowning and someone threw you a towel. It doesn't seem like it's going to help. It's not the right tool. But for Paul, the gospel of which he is unashamed is this explosive power capable of breaking the hold of sin in human lives, capable of destroying pervasive unrighteousness, even in the very heart of the city, the very heart of the empire. One key element of this is to remember that the gospel is an announcement. It's a message, a declaration about God and about his action in the world. It's not a prescription or advice, a plan on how human beings can improve themselves over and against the effects of unrighteousness. It's a message, rather, communicating what God has done in Jesus Christ. As some have written, it's not a plan of improvement, it's an announcement about the raising of the dead. And just like the news went out this week throughout the United States, having this dramatic effect. This news about God and what he has done in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus changes the fabric of life. It changes the world. When we hear of God being so faithful to his covenant promises that he sent his only son to die for us. When we learn about him gloriously raising Jesus to new life, to reign and rule with justice over all creation. When we receive the message that he has taken the righteousness of his son and said it over us, in us, graciously promising for us the same good end of Jesus' risen life. When we hear all that, we can't help but be changed. When these truths are laid hold of and believed, we can't help but live differently. Such is the power contained in the gospel message. There was a song decades ago by Ben Harper. It's eyes for the blind and legs for the lame. It's love for hate and pride for shame. That's the power of the gospel. That's the content of the power of the gospel. But an interesting aspect of what Paul is writing in our text this morning in Romans 1:16 and 17, is that just as the content of the message has power, The message itself is said to have power. The declaration itself seems to have this force. That word revealing can have both the idea of disclosing, but also of bringing into existence. That is, the declaration brings into existence God's righteousness. This can be a subtle thing for us to distinguish, but we have some examples from life for for this. The ways that messages carry with them power beyond the specific content. When someone important tells us that they love us, that content is meaningful, but the very act has power as well. It carries its own significance. That's why we remember the first time that we might have said those words or someone important the first time they might have said them to us. There's power in the statement. It changes things. With the events of this week regarding the trial of George Floyd's killer, the message guilty went out across the nation and had this dramatic effect, the content of it. But the words themselves in the context of that courtroom rendered a verdict. In the words, there was power over the life of the accused. Words like these in academic circles are sometimes referred to as speech acts, messages that accomplish something, that are actions more than just delivering content. The gospel, according to Paul here, functions similarly. Declaring who God is and what he's done in Jesus does something. It has force. It has power. It changes things. How could it be in any other way? It is the word of God. When the gospel is preached, the human agent, Paul would say, I suspect, is not the primary preacher. He himself describes how he has received the gospel. Rather than the human preacher being primary, it is the God who the gospel is about, who initiates this word, who is the primary preacher. And when God speaks, things happen let there be light stand up and walk lazarus come forth you see the gospel delivers content about the justice of god about his attributes and qualities and it also makes manifest his right working in the world it makes calls into existence his righteousness in the world just like saying i love you for the first time changes the tenor of a relationship Declaring the truth about Jesus Christ, announcing who he is, and all that he has done changes the atmosphere. It's an act of declaring these truths that manifest the power of God. The word of God, the gospel message, does not return void. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is communicated. Hell, sin, and the powers of this world are dislodged they shake. This reality is why Paul is unashamed. Even at the heart of the empire, for all its sophistication, for all its intractable problems, for all the captivity to sin, the deeply ensconced unrighteousness righteousness that it represents, there is power, the power to save in these words. My uncle is a firefighter in Vancouver. He's been a firefighter for many years. I remember as a boy him telling me about something called the life hammer. Some of you might be familiar with this, but it's this tiny little tool, about five inches long, and it remarkably has the power to save. Though it seems far too small and seemingly ineffectual, this tool and others like it, through this very simple spring mechanism, are capable of shattering autoglass, windshields windows with minimal effort. The simple flick of a wrist or a barely perceptible tap of the fingers, potentially freeing someone who is trapped, saving them. The gospel, both in the truth it contains, and both as an action, seemingly small and insignificant, just words, irrelevant to what might seem like our most pressing needs, has this same dynamiting power the power to save, the power to break down that which enslaves, the power to break us out into green pastures, into God's goodness and mercy, the power to make us dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's the power of the gospel. In closing, I want to emphasize that this power God's salvation creating power in the gospel, as one writer has put it, is for you. Paul's point in our verses this morning is that the gospel is for Romans and it is for everyone. First the Jew, we'll talk about that more later, and then to the Greek, the nations, you and I. You are not excluded. The powerful and freeing message of the gospel is one delivered to you. The power it contains is yours to receive. In light of that, how then should we respond? First, let us preach the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself. Preach it in your household. Put yourself in settings where others might preach it to you, where the word, this powerful word, is proclaimed regularly. Put yourself in such settings. We never grow out of our need for an encounter with the revealed righteousness of God. And of course, preach it to others. Paul's conviction is that Rome, the greatest city at the center of the world, needs to hear the gospel. Needs the power of the gospel. Where God has placed you, where he's taking you tomorrow or this week needs the preaching of the gospel, needs this power. There's no room in this city where the power of the gospel, the power of God's righteousness is not needed. There's no situation where it should not be revealed and where it is revealed that it cannot dislodge and overcome the power of sin and unrighteousness. There's no person too sophisticated. There's no person too far gone. Shortly after the verdict was rendered this week, the hashtag rot in hell began to trend on social media with reference to George Floyd's killer. An expression of anger, anger at what had been done, anger at the power of sin and unrighteousness, unchecked and on display. I read, too, that George Floyd's killer now spends 23 hours a day in solitary confinement, waiting on sentencing. It is perhaps an uncomfortable thing, but if we are to take Paul's words here in Romans seriously, as the word of God for us today, the gospel's power is for rooms like that one, is for people like Derek Chauvin as enmeshed as he might be in a hell of his own making, as enmeshed as he might be in a hell wrought by the powers of sin and righteousness. To those very depths, the gospel can, the gospel must be proclaimed, that the righteousness of God might be made manifest and the powers of hell be broken in that cell and in the cells of our own making let us be a people who preach the gospel. The second response is to have faith. The gospel is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. The righteous will live by faith. So says Paul, so say the prophets. Put your trust in the truth that because of Jesus, God's righteousness is now at work in the world available to you, and winning the day, bearing fruit 60, 90, 100 fold. Set your confidence there and live accordingly. As an act of will today, put your trust in Jesus and who he is and what he's done. Make him and his completed work the basis of your life. Faith here, in the idea of Paul, is more than a one-time act or merely this cognitive action. Think of it less as like agreeing to the precepts of a specific argument, though that's important, but more like responding to a person in trust, responding to the person of Jesus, the embodiment of God's righteousness, the one to whom the gospel refers faith, trust, allegiance to him. These are the naturally occurring reactions to seeing Jesus clearly in the words of the gospel. Just like baking soda when it comes in contact with vinegar naturally produces carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide. The human person brought into contact with Jesus through the gospel, seeing him rightly, produces faith. It's a natural occurring reaction to his